ever get the uneasy feeling that you've been fed a lie? Not just any lie, but one that you have believed your entire life and which has guided many of your decisions. Most of the time, we shake off this feeling and go about our lives. But what if that feeling was the key to unlocking everything? I'm Joe Kwan, the Connection Counselor, and on each episode of The Big Lie, we'll reveal a new lie that once uncovered has the power to transform your relationships, career, and life. Let's do this. Do you enjoy having great ideas, but not being heard? Or worse, having someone repeat them and get all the credit? Are you happy to continue delivering great work only to be passed over and watch as others from outside the company or your peers get the job? Would you benefit from being part of a community whose focus is on developing the interpersonal skills needed to elevate your career? Hi, I'm Joe Kwan, the Connection Counselor, and I just launched such a community on Slack called Unlock You. If you believe unlocking interpersonal skills is a crucial part of elevating your career, I would love for you to join us. Enrollment is currently open and free. You can go to www.connectioncounselor.com and click on the link to join us. See you soon. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Big Lie. Today, we have a wonderful guest with us, Marsha Dashko. She is a thought leader and leadership transformation strategist. Marsha is the CEO of Marsha Dashko Associates, which she founded over 25 years ago. She was mentored by Dr. W. Edwards Deming, who helped Japan become a global competitor after World War II and helps organizations thrive. She is a fantastic and provocative keynote speaker and has taught MBA leadership classes at six universities across the US. Finally, she's an accomplished author and her latest book is Pivot, Disrupt, Transform. Welcome, Marsha. Thank you very much. This is so exciting to have a conversation with you today about the big lie. Yes, yes. I loved our back and forth as we circled around it. <laughs> I know. And then we targeted in, we got it. We got the focus. Excellent, excellent. So uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us about a favorite cuisine or, or dining experience. The first thing that pops into my mind is s'mores. I don't know why, maybe it brings back great memories when I was little, when went uh, in the RV with my grandparents. But s'mores to me also brings back the memories and I think today of children and when I think of kids, they're constantly learning. And that joy in learning, joy in work, joy in life is part of something that I think everyone and every leader especially needs to make sure that they develop in themselves and then create an organization, their environment, full of joy, full of people learning and improving and working together. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, you know, retention is such a big 
topic these days, right? In, in HR and, and corporate circles. And like, no one ever talks about having a joyful workplace, right? They talk about benefits. They talk about how much salary or what type of benefits matter. No one talks about just having a, a really joyful, wonderful environment. You know, I mean, I guess they talk about culture, but you don't really hear the word joy. It's almost like we're scared to talk about it. That's right. Joy and care and love and concern and support. And I think those words, not maybe joy, that's, that's almost too bold. But I think that people are starting to talk about more about engagement, empathy, caring for your employees. Um, and and I, it came about partly because of the retention issue. But now because everyone identifies that people have a lot of fears, people have a lot of concerns, and it's you know, across an organization, it's leadership and, and everyone who may have fear of losing their job, losing their business, um, fear of the unknown, fear of uncertainty. So it takes leaders who really open up communication and, and trying to figure out how do we have a great environment, even though we have to be, uh, many of us, virtual now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. Well, let's go to what I like to call our, our launch pad or launching point, uh, where we have a quote or a, a video that embodies our big lie for today. Um, this one happens to be uh, a passage from your book. So I'll go ahead and read that for our folks. It is possible for capable leaders to optimize and transform our systems. Systems can survive and grow, or they can fail. What is the difference? Why do some leaders and organizations fail while others survive and flourish? If leaders exhibit only tactical and analytical behavior without strategic visionary thinking, systems will fail. This path towards failure is not necessary, yet it is the path that some leaders and organizations unknowingly choose. The survival of many systems depends on their leaders having systems knowledge and the courage to move beyond the accepted norms. I really like this uh, passage, Marsha, and the big lie we're gonna discuss today that you're gonna unwrap for us is, executives should follow the practices of successful leaders. So talk to us a little bit more about the lie, your passage, uh, and some of your insights. Okay. Um, well, leaders, uh, it's like, oh, I just sometimes want to strangle a few of them <laughs> because um, leaders, some leaders struggle and flounder and fail. And other leaders, they, they tackle the tough issues. They have a vision. Uh, they, re they move the barriers out of their way. And they are constantly creating, innovating, thinking about how they can serve customers and create new markets, and they thrive. So um, some embrace disrupting and creating change, and, and they, they pivot. So they are capable of seeing a need, and then what they do, they oftentimes 
they have to make a fundamental, often abrupt and rapid change in direction. And we especially saw that through the pandemic. Uh, and we continue to see it. Those leaders who can, who are looking not at just analytical, you know, data in their belly button, but can go beyond that and say, what do people need? What are the problems, the issues, the challenges? And what can we do to serve those people, whether or not there are current customers or not, but people need help. How can we help them? How can we support them? How can we make a difference? And that's the kind of leadership that we need to look at, not the victim leadership, not the, the people that have maybe had a business um, or a, a position for 10 or 20 or 30 years, but instead they've always had challenges. They've seen what's possible. They've seen the potential. They've pursued the opportunities. And that's the difference between the some people, uh, managers, executives, that have maybe had an idea, ran with that idea, and had a company for 10 or 20 years, and then when things shifted, they didn't shift with it. They didn't pivot when they needed to. They didn't adapt. They weren't resilient. They didn't improve. They didn't innovate. And great leaders are constantly doing those things, not just during this time of you know, crisis and the pandemic and challenges and so forth. But, but great leaders are continually improving, innovating, um, adapting, learning, um, changing, and creating an environment where everybody knows that we need to work together to accomplish our aim, to serve our customers, to create new products and services. So when people have that mindset, then executives can really um, thrive. And if they're challenged, they can revive and survive. Um, but some immediately shut down. They go into victim mode and they, um, like with, with the pandemic, some, some organizations just almost immediately furloughed their staff. And I'm not saying it's easy for everyone. We know that um, some industries has, have really gotten slammed, like uh, travel and hospitality. And of course, those are, those are you know, off-the-chart challenges. But even some organizations that could have you know, gone out of business, they have not. And it's because of their leaders being able to think differently and being bold and taking risks and following um, opportunities. So for example, like even General Motors and Ford, they make cars. Well, then maybe they weren't selling as many because people, people's cars are in the garage they, and they don't need cars. But they shifted, they pivoted and said, what does society need? What do people need right now? They need ventilators. We're a manufacturing organization. They shifted, they pivoted from making cars to making ventilators. Uh, we, we heard about you know, companies that they were making um, 
they were they were making beer and they shifted and made hand sanitizers so actually as i done the research those are those are some of the common stories we heard about but um, there are hundreds and thousands of examples like that of companies that maybe they made clothes and they shifted and made masks. And so looking at leader, great leaders think, what's the need and how can, I, how can I solve it? And then they create the system to be able to do that. So what I love about what you're saying and what I'm almost picturing is like, a leader, like standing in a high traffic area, right? So they're doing great, right? Because everyone's coming by and they're handing them a bottle of water or whatever it is they're selling, you know, a program. But their feet are like encased in cement, right? So something happens, the entrance to the stadium or whatever moves, and they're still trying to hand things out, but they can't move because their feet are like firmly rooted into that spot. So what you described what I'm getting from it is a much more dynamic kind of leader, right? They're not running around because they have to, but when they realize that they have to move, they're able to move and adjust, which puts less stress on the rest of the company and the employees. So my, I guess my follow-up um, question to you is, you know, what have you seen either in terms of personality, management style, culture values, between the people who seem to be a little bit more flexible and resilient and agile versus the people who, to use your words, are more like a victim blaming type reaction. I'm, I'm very curious to get your insights on that. Yes, there, um, it's all about how people think and they can learn to think differently. Some, a few people cannot, they're very stuck in that old thinking in that uh, they don't want to change. They don't want to change at all. Mm. Um, that's hard. There are, in my 25 years, luckily I've only seen a few like that um, and others who really, um, they do want to improve, but no one has ever really taught them about how to think about leading, what their responsibility is, um, how to do it. Um, what's important, what they need to know. For example, um, one of my client presidents said to me one day, Marsha, I've been struggling with the same problems for more than 12 years. He said, you've come in here in a week, identified the root causes of those challenges I've had. And now we have a plan to begin working on those solutions. And it took new education. It took new thinking. Um, it took systems thinking. So there were certain things they, the, the leadership team learned together. Um, that was um, what, I, what Dr. Deming taught me, the system of profound knowledge, which is a uh, leader has to understand systems thinking. It's not silos that leaders lead. It's, it's, the, how the parts fit together. So if they think in terms of departments and silos, then that's how the company, the organization is, is sub-optimized. Instead, because if you think of a car, you don't think of just, oh, the wheels, the steering wheel, um, the seats, the motor, the, the pieces. You think of how do the pieces 
work together. And that's how the car is able to operate. The same thing with if you make a cake. Well, how many things do you need to make a cake? You need the ingredients, but you need the pans, and you need the, the mixer, and you need the oven, and you need the electricity for the oven. So the system is bigger than just looking at parts and analytics. And uh, my concern is that we are also getting so focused on just data um, in our nation. And all of a sudden, we've got thousands and thousands of data scientists. And I'm wondering, wow, you know, where did these people come from that have the knowledge of statistics? Because that I, I was mentored by two amazing PhD statisticians. And even when I go into an organization, I've studied some statistics, but I also know that if I don't set up a statistical uh, process correctly and gather the information and analyze it correctly, I can make the wrong decisions. And I can't take that chance. So I always bring in a PhD statistician with me to look at an organization. And um, that, and especially in healthcare, can you imagine making a lot of wrong decisions? It's okay if I'm making a, a you know, a widget or a toy um, that's, you know, not going to hurt people. But in the healthcare environment, those wrong decisions can cost lives. I really love the point you made about the, um, the data, right? And, and the data scientists, because as everyone knows, like being a data scientist, one of the hottest fields uh, right now, along with, let's say, cybersecurity. Um, And I had this thought the other day, and I'm curious to get your reaction to it. I feel pretty strongly that data cannot tell you what decision you should make. Data only gives you an answer to a question you're asking, right? So you ask like, you know, if I go left, what will happen? If I go right, what will happen, right? But whether you should go left or right depends on your ultimate goal and purpose, right? Like sometimes something bad happening to you or what could be considered quote unquote bad is actually the better thing if it fulfills your purpose. So like, I feel like kind of, it's very dangerous and very like science fiction, right? Like to abdicate our decision-making to, a formula or an algorithm and lose sight of like, there's an actual purpose why we're asking the question. I'm just curious to get your insights because I know you work a lot with statistics and, and, and data. You're spot on because the leadership has to be thinking strategically and with the system in mind to optimize the system. Then yes, you have processes, you can gather information and data in context about a process and how those processes work together. But when it comes to decision-making, that has to come from the strategic systems thinking questions. And that's what leadership is responsible for. And they have to understand enough about the theory of variation and statistics to be able to ask good questions. And they need to have statisticians, you know, in their in their wheelhouse, you know, PhD statisticians that understand control charts and they can't, just can't follow trends that are, are 
laid out there on trend sheets or on Excel. Those don't work. They can give you really the wrong answers. And that's what my concern is when it comes to too much analytics and too much focus on, you know, we got to do all this stuff with, you know, data science. Um, it can also take us down a very wrong path. So that's why I, I'm always kind of pushing up the thinking about great leaders because they need to be listening. They need to be um, communicating a direction, an aim. They need to um, continually ask questions and develop their organization to have enough ability to have healthy um, conversations, ask questions, listen to answers, ask more questions. That is system optimization. And that so much is what leaders need to do. Um, in, in my book, I talk about the first section is what leaders need to stop doing. And those things are so powerful. If leaders even go through kind of a list, and I've got leadership assessments in there and so forth, and if leaders stop doing a lot of the quote-unquote best practices and management fads, that would significantly help them be able to um, thrive in their organization and have an environment where it is not toxic and dysfunctional and constant turnover and so forth. But it means that they really have to ask tough questions about beliefs and assumptions about their current practices. Um, for example, um, uh, it, when, co when companies focus on the, the numbers, the metrics, the bottom line, to the detriment of the systems and processes that create that bottom line. So oftentimes, I've worked with a leadership team and they may have a one or two day offsite meeting a month. And I, I ask, what do you talk about during that time? And they said, you know, budgets and forecasts and so forth for like two days. <laughs> my response is, okay, we're gonna have a new kind of uh, we're going to pivot that thinking. We're going to have a new kind of offsite meeting. And I'll create the agenda. And we start talking about leadership and systems thinking and theory of variation and so forth. And we have that for two days. And I let them talk about, I put on the agenda, uh, for, forecasts and results um, the last 30 minutes of the second day. <laughs> They're shocked. When I tell them they get 30 minutes to talk about that, they go, Marsha, what are we going to talk about? And I'm like, you'll see. And then before you know it, every single month we have a two-day meeting. Sometimes we don't even get to talking about the results because if we're talking about the right things, what are the what's, what's the aim of the company? What, who are they serving? How e effective are they? How are the systems and processes working? When we talk about all those things, there's little time to talk about just, just the results. I mean, no. we do, do look at them, but when you're actually looking at the data over time on a control chart, you don't need a lot of time to see how's the company doing? 
how is the depart that department doing how are how are are you know are we increasing number of patents are we um you know what what what's a productivity looking like things like that well you know what's really uh kind of interesting about what you're saying i saw something once it was you know one of those silly things on the internet you know where they have like a poster and it said you can't drive a boat by looking at the wake you know it's already happened you know i mean it's it's helpful to see what happened obviously and you want to look at trending but you kind of have to see what's in front of you yeah. <laughs> as yeah. well and, and and everything you're saying here marcia um it kind of strikes me and, and let me know what you think about this you know the people you work with and and these companies they're they're highly educated great experience you know um you know smart well-intentioned people but it almost seems like this sort of thinking the the whole integrating the systems and you know thinking about these sorts of things it's almost like it's lacking in their education like like no one told them like they didn't learn it in school or business school and their mentors and the previous ceo didn't tell the it, it's like what is going on here my assumption when I was working with my mentors, Dr. Deming, Dr. Perry Gluckman, when I was learning, when I, just for the first few years, and I was going to Dr. Deming's four-day seminars, and there were 1,500 people in the room. These are the senior executives of companies in the United States from the Fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. And my assumption, and I was in my 30s, my assumption was these are brilliant people. They're the top of the companies in the United States. And then what I learned pretty quickly was there was a lot they didn't know. They mm -hmm. did not understand Dr. Deming's philosophy of leadership. Mm -hmm. They did not understand systems thinking. They didn't know how to make decisions. They didn't know how to create an environment where people could work together. They didn't understand people. Um, one of the people that I just always have loved is, um, and he, he um, had Dr. Deming teaching him for 10 years, and that, um, that's Dom Peterson, the foreman, former um, CEO, chairman of the board of Ford Motor Company. And Don said once, everything we do, we do through people. And he re really committed to learning from Dr. Deming. He spent a day a month with him for 10 years. Wow. So when he met Dr. Deming, Dr. Deming was in his 80s. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Deming lived until uh, age 93, and he passed away in 1993. And so, um, but that, thinking that, he, it's what great leaders do is they go through a personal transformation. And then they can transform their organizations. So I was fortunate that I learned about Dr. Deming and his philosophy when I was in my 30s. It made me shift how I thought about working, consulting, teaching, and raising my son and how he would, um, how he would experience school because... Of course, I grew up with grades and I got good grades. So when he went to school, I thought he'll get grades. Well, Dr. Deming was against grades. And so uh, when he went to first grade and the first parent night, with you know, all the parents and the new teacher, brand new teacher, um, she said she was sharing how she would teach and how she would grade. And I raised my hand and I said, 
why are you going to grade? And she was, you could tell, so shocked because it's like, I am a teacher, therefore I grade. We all learned that, right? And um, by, with some discussion, the parents and the teacher decided we're not going to give children grades. We want to create an environment for them to experience joy and learning. And we should have that joy and learning and working together our whole lives. So I was able through each grade and, you know, by the, then other parents were with me, we kept the grades out of his elementary school until he went to sixth grade. Wow. So by then, by then he, he had the joy and learning instilled in him. And I only asked my son two questions when he would come home. Did you have fun? What did you learn? So he knew that those two concepts were integrated. And even when I teach MBA classes, I tell my class that first night, if you do these things, everyone gets an A. Now, sometimes it takes them a few weeks to believe me, mm -hmm. but then I say, okay, well, now that we've talked about the grades and we've set those aside, what, are we what should we do? Uh, what do you think is important? And they go, and one of the students said one day, focus on learning. I said, wow, what a concept. Let's do that. <laughs> and they were my MBA students. And what they learned during those 10 weeks, they also asked me, Marcia, why all these years through school, undergraduate, graduate school, I'm in my last class, and now I'm just learning what I need to know when I'm out there being a manager? Well, I said, uh I can't answer your, the question. I don't know why we didn't learn it earlier, but we need to learn it whether it's in grade school, high school, college, or in the work environment where I'm working with executive teams. Sometimes, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's five, ten years before they're going to be retiring, but they're learning it now. They learn systems thinking, statistical thinking, and how to transform themselves and their organizations by not just taking the best practices and management fads, like, you know, what, what good are performance appraisals where you rank and rate people? Um, what good are grades? What good are 360 feedback tools? These are, these are things, SAT tests, we need to get rid of these, this thinking and, and shift and put our energy and our passion and how we can make a difference with, with customers to provide great services and products and roll those things out. So we need to really pivot our thinking. Well, what I love about what you're saying is uh, I'm a big fan of thinking about learning and, and, and how we learn. And obviously you have a lot of experience uh, as a professor doing that. And, and one thing I firmly believe is, well, two things. One, you learn best when you're relaxed, right? Like, like when you took away the grade kind of requirement or, or the fear, now your students can get down to the business of learning. Yes. Um, and then the second thing I truly believe is, it's kind of ridiculous to think that like, how, was, how big was your average class size? Like 30 or 40, 90, yeah. 30, 40, right? It's yeah. crazy to think that you have 30 or 40 people with you for, you know, a semester or two semesters and that they should all learn like identically, 
right? Like they should all get the same thing out of the content and they should all end up in the same place. That's ludicrous. Some people are going to get this concept really well and be like super strong and be clueless about this. And then others will be the opposite. Some people are great and they'll get everything, right? Some people will struggle with a lot, but it's like, it, it's kind of ridiculous to think like there is some optimal, just because we say, you know, this is a class and this is A, B, C, D, that human beings actually work like that. We don't, we don't slot that way. And I feel like it does a disservice to the learning process, right? Because it's, it's this artificial thing that we've created and forced people into rather than how you would learn anything naturally. Yes. Another thing that I do is I mention to my students Oh, the computers, because I see the tops of their heads and their computer in the <laughs> screen. I go, you don't need those. Put those away. Yeah. Because most of the time what I want to be doing is I want to put them in exercises. Uh-huh. And so they will experientially learn a concept. I don't, I don't need to explain it to them ahead of time. I put them in the exercise and they go through it. And then after we debrief, and I say, what did you learn? There's so many concepts that come out of the exercises. And then, and then the next important step is, okay, you learn these concepts. They're important. How do you apply them uh-huh. to your work? Because if they can't take a concept and apply it over to what they're doing, what they're expected to accomplish every day, then there'll be a disconnect. But that's why I have them experientially learn it instead of me telling them, instead of me going through PowerPoints with them. Um, I, I, I want them to feel what has to be different and think about what has to be different and then think about how can I apply this to what I'm doing and what's currently getting in the way of what are those barriers getting in the way of us getting this job done or meeting the customer's needs? Oftentimes, it's complexity. It's busyness. I had one client, I said to them, just being pr- busy does not mean that you're being productive. And I'm not going to feel like I was successful with you here until you stop being busy. Every time I call and say, how are you? And if you tell me busy, I, yes, I should just hang up on you. <laughs> because I want them to focus, choose, like if it's a company, they can't have 20 priorities. I get them down to like maybe three or four. Focus on three or four things. And then you've got your priorities, you've got your focus, and then create your team that will work together in order to accomplish that priority. I love this conversation and, and it has me thinking, if I could go back in time, right, and, and rewind to like college and, and then law school, right? It was like, I wish the focus was more on coming out as the most dangerous person possible, right? Like the things that I learned make me so valuable and dangerous rather than, you know, the grades I need in undergrad to get into graduate school, the grades I need in graduate school to do well, to get a job once I get out or, or to yes. do well on, you know, or to figure out the, um, uh, you know, the board exams, you know, because it's almost like we're, 
we're focusing or targeting on these things that, to your point, have nothing to do or no connection with the actual work, like very little um, that you learn in school or even grad school has to do with the actual work. It's a foundation, but then the work, you, you learn everything like on the job. Why are we learning some of that like in school, especially at a, you know, if you know what you're going to do? Um, and it just strikes me as just this bizarre way of spending a lot of time and money. Yeah. Think about, think about year after year after year in grade school, you know, what you learned over and over again. And then, and then high school, and they wonder why so many high school students drop out their board. And then, um, and, and we have a big issue, uh, you know, of that in the nation of, um, you know, students and that and if they're bored then they turn to gangs they turn to drugs they turn to um a lot of things that are not helpful and then and then but what are they trying to do some of them are trying to get the grades to to compete to get into college and to get those those sat or act scores mm -hmm. which are meaningless mm -hmm. and they draw there's no correlation between um, the people, the companies that run these SATs tests will have a, a fit when I say this. <laughs> um, there is not a correlation between those test scores and the success or the happiness of, of people, either college students or how successful they are in their chosen field. And nowadays, people don't stay in one field anyway. They, they, on average, might have 10 to 15 different careers in their lifetime. So, yeah. <laughs> I get really wound up when it comes to, you know, grades and um, especially for little kids. And because we should be giving them the joy of learning. We, what happens is the opposite. By grading students, we take the joy of learning away. And it's proven with the research. It used to be by grade three. Um, creativity in children would go down, would decline. But now it's grade one. So that's why I'm so, um, so always uh, passionate about people learning and how they learn. And don't worry about you know, the grade or even um, a numerical goal because oftentimes organizations, they create arbitrary numerical goals. They create targets. That's an, uh, another thing they, that leaders need to stop doing, creating these arbitrary numerical goals and quotas and incentives and things that they don't add value. We need to get back, really back to basics. That's why I put one one of the tools in my, I call it a tool, I guess, but it's a, a series of questions. And a company, if they answer those five questions, can run their business. I don't care if it's a Fortune 100 company or a small privately owned company or a nonprofit, any organization. If they answer those five questions, get clarity about what's our compelling purpose, by what method will we achieve it? What value do we, values do we stand for and behave in that way? Who are we serving and what do they need? That's where we can look at the data. What do they need? 
And then what's our measure of progress? Not just success, not the final thing that goes to your, your analogy with the boat and, you know, looking backward. It's like, like Dr. Myron Tribus said too, you know, how, how do you see the future when you're looking in your rear view mirror? Yeah. Yeah, we need to look forward. What do we want to accomplish together and get focused on that and not be all over the map? Because when we're all over the map, then nothing gets finished. Nothing gets done effectively. So we need to do a few things really well, but be in very close relationship with our customers and have that amazing communication. And that means internal customers as well. So like right now with the pandemic, leaders, they need to be upping their communication with their employees, their teams, like never before. And if they're not doing that, then they will, um, they will flounder. Because so, people need communication. They need direction. They need to understand. They need the leaders to address the fears that they're feeling. So, Marsha, it, it strikes me that, you know, we started talking, out, uh, started talking about the big lie, which is that you should just follow former successful leaders and successful practices. And then we kind of like veered into like education and educational theory. But it seems to me that, you know, now that we're talking, the two are, the two are closely intertwined. The reason why people don't get it is because we've almost been indoctrinated into thinking, oh, that was successful in the past, or this is what's important. And, and we're, we're constantly looking at the past. We're not looking forward. So let me ask you, I like to do something called the next step. You know, now that folks have, have heard all these wonderful insights from you, what is a single sort of specific concrete step uh, that people can do to take advantage of this knowledge? So if people have the old thinking, the old knowledge, and the, what, I'm, what we've been talking about is new to them, and it's bold, and it's like, whoa, what, what is this about kind of thing? The first thing that they need to do is learn, study, think differently, ask more questions. Even when Alan Mulally became CEO of Ford uh, some years ago, the first thing that he did, he, he just didn't gather with his leadership team and say, okay, we'll make a plan and go forward. He went out and he talked to the dealerships. He wanted to talk to the people who were closest to the customers. He probably talked to customers too, but the thinking of he needed to get clarity about direction he's going he wanted to listen and ask questions of the people who were close to the customers, the people he's serving at Ford Motor. So um, like I did, I was, I mean, I walked into um, working with, my background was marketing communications. My master's in, is in corporate or is in mass communications. And I walked into Perry's um, uh, consulting group and all of these ideas were new to me and immediately I began to study um, he sent me to Dr. Deming's four-day seminar I came back and I said what was that all about I was I think I was 32 years old that's when my learning began 
So I had learned a lot in school. Yes, I could add and multiply. Never understood why I had to take algebra. Never made sense to me. (laughs) I just had to take it because they said it looks good on the transcript. I hated math. But, um, but But the reason was I saw no relevance. Nobody connected the dots for me. You learn algebra to do such and such. I don't right. know. I still don't know. But, um, but I, I connected now enough dots so things make more sense. But that's it. We need to, we need to, so the, the one thing is, if these ideas are new and different, people need to challenge what they know. The beliefs and assumptions that, yes, Grades are great. Performance appraisals are great. It's okay to, for us to judge and rank and rate and blame and criticize people. No, it's not okay. Leaders created that system, and they need to create a, a system that's optimal for everyone, that people can come to work, find joy in learning and working and improving together, and make a difference. So. If organizations are toxic, dysfunctional, it's the leader's job to create a new environment. So that means they need to learn differently. So on my on my website, there's a bibliography, a short one, used to be longer, and I made a short bibliography referring a few books to leaders. So because otherwise they say, Marsha, where do we begin? Mm. So I I suggest a few books. The Goal. It's a, actually fictional. It was written more than 30 years ago. One of the most powerful books out there. And then, of course, I would recommend my own because it's it talks about all these things you and I are talking about. Absolutely. Well, Marsha, this has been so illuminating. I've I've learned so much, and and I, a lot of what you're saying about learning and and joy, it just resonates, you know, so deeply with me as a professional, and also when I think about our son Lucas, and and just how I want him to experience sort of his educational years. And my and my wife is a is a former high school school teacher, so she definitely follows this philosophy awesome. as well. Um, so for, uh, he's uh, just turned twelve. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. so starting middle school. Thanks for asking. Let me ask you for our audience who has, you know, uh, learned a lot from you today. If, if they want to learn more, if they want to learn about your book, if they want to talk to you about the different services you, services you provide, how can they do that? Yes. Well, to, to find the book, that's really easy. Just go to Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble and uh, look up Pivot, Disrupt, Transform. And then also in there, there's a short bio, but then my website is mdashko.com. And so if you've got Marsha Dashko, um, the spelling is a little challenging, but um, just Google me, you will find pages and pages and, and really use my website too as a resource. Email me. I'm happy to always engage with people, answer questions, give you uh, references. Um, if you're struggling with certain things, maybe I can, can you know, steer you to a, a, a podcast, a webinar, a book or something as a resource. So I'm happy to speak to groups who want to understand about more about pivoting and transforming 
their leadership, especially, you know, corporations that are struggling, um, they, they can do it. People have called me and one guy called and in 30 minutes, we actually created the plan for him to pivot his business and start a new company. Wow. Amazing. It's fun. Thank you, Marcia, for sharing your big lie with us. I can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Joe Kwan, the Connection Counselor. Do you like feeling stuck in your professional career or relationships? Do you like wasting time on top five lists or superficial advice? If there was a way to change your life without having to get anyone else's permission, would you take it? I'm happy to announce the launch of Unlock University or Unlock You. Join us as we unlock the 12 super personal skills that will immediately transform the way people respond to you. To learn more, go to www.connectioncounselor.com. See you in class. Thank you so much for listening to The Big Lie. We hope it has an amazing impact on your life. I only have one favor to ask. If you enjoy the show, please tell the one person you know who needs to hear about it and share the link. That's it. Together, we can vanquish these illusions that are holding us back.